Well, thank you. Uh, it's very nice to be here. Uh, I'm sort of bi-coastal. I live in Oakland, California, but I totally enjoy coming to Massachusetts, hanging out in Boston, hanging out in Barrie. So it's really nice to be back. Tonight's talk begins actually with a question. What were the Buddha's last words? Be a light unto yourself. Anything else? Strive with diligence. Any other takers? Well, he did say, be a deepa unto yourself. Deepa could be translated as lamp or island. Probably a pun. The suttas are full of puns, but you got to have a translator who puts footnotes so you can know this. Um, but he didn't say that the night he died. He said it about, I believe, 10 months before he died and three months before he died. Right before he died, he said, all the things of creation are subject to decay. Diligently seek liberation or strive with diligence. I have an even more obscure question for you. So the first sermon, people are probably familiar with the first sermon, the Dharma, Chakra, Pavadana, Sutta. The Buddha talks about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And at the end of it, he got kind of excited. He recognized that one of the five ascetics that he had given this talk to, Kandanya by name, got it, understood what he was talking about. Remember, the Buddha was reluctant to teach. He thought, nobody's going to understand this. And Kadanya got it. Kadanya knew, which in Pali is something like Anya Kadanya. What did Kadanya know? Very good. All that arises also ceases. So the Buddha's teaching started out well, giving insight into impermanence. And the last thing he said before he left, it's impermanence, right? Practice hard. When we come to the Dharma and we hear about anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence or inconstancy, suffering or better unsatisfactoriness, or my favorite, bummer, and not self, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, okay, everything changes. I, I can buy that. Everything's impermanent. I'll even buy that. But everything is dukkha? You know, I had some cookies recently that were, they weren't dukkha, right? What's, what's this about? And the weather tonight, that, that's not dukkha. How come everything is dukkha? I don't get that. And then all phenomena are without self. Yeah, doesn't make any sense at all, right? That's, that's an advanced topic. But I got one out of three right away, right? Well, no. If you fully got the impermanence one, you'd have gotten the other two. If you fully got the impermanence one, you'd be fully awakened, I think. Right? It's, it's really quite important. 
Mostly, we, we get it by going, yeah, yeah, okay, but we don't really get it deeply inside. And that's sort of what we got to do. So, <laughs> I could talk about impermanence tonight, but I can't give you that. You're going to have to do the practice. But maybe what I say will give you some ideas about impermanence and why it's so important. And if all those people sitting over in the corner want to come sit out front, there's all this space here. And I put on fresh socks just before coming. <laughs> there's a story about a kingdom where the old king died. And the new king declares that in celebration of his coronation, everyone is welcome to give him a present. And whoever gives him the most powerful present will become the new prime minister. And so people bring various presents. The uh, general of the army brings a bow that is so hard to pull, almost nobody can pull it. But if you can, it, it's pretty powerful to shoot an arrow a long ways. The old prime minister brings an elephant. And everybody's like, yeah, he's going to get to keep his job. But then a jeweler comes forward. And he's got a little box, you know, the size of a jewel box, right? And he bows before the king and he pushes a little present forward and says, be careful, your majesty. What's in that box has the power to make you happy when you're sad, but also to make you sad when you're happy. Well, the king is intrigued. He opens the box, and it is a, a gold ring. And written around the outside of the ring is, this too shall pass. Yeah, sometimes this changeability is really good. If you're sick, yeah, you want the change to happen, right? And if it's things are going really well, yeah, you just prefer things not change, right? Well, actually, you better be glad things change. We are built out of change. Suppose you took an in-breath and then nothing changed. Well, you'd last a few minutes, but not very long. And if you took an out-breath and nothing changed, it wouldn't even be a few minutes. What if your heart stopped changing? I think that's what they call a dead person, right? If your digestion stopped changing your food into energy, stored energy for you, yeah. Uh, we're totally dependent on change. It's just some change we don't want to happen. Another change we're really happy with. It changes everywhere. Change is so all-pervasive, we can't even see it sometimes. So I got another question for you. Why does time go in only one direction? I mean, I could get up and I could walk over to the door and then I could walk back here, right? But there's no way I can go back to 7.30 even though it's only like seven minutes ago, right? 
It just goes in one direction, and it goes pretty much at one speed. I mean, you can make it go a little bit faster by doing something really boring, or a little bit slower by doing something really exciting, but why does it go in one direction only? I mean, that that's weird. You can't do much about that. And uh, where is the past? Where is the future? Well, a problem arises because there's no such thing as time. All there is is change. And we attempt to measure the rate at which things change. We have some pretty good rate sticks, uh, sunrise and sunset, and uh, trip around the sun and the phases of the moon. So we got all these things that give us regularity, and so we can add some regularity to the change, and then we come up with time. But truth be told, it's always now. When has it ever not been now? I mean, somebody asks you, is it now or is it yesterday? I mean, you're like, no, it's now. Is it now or tomorrow? It's still now. I mean, even when it gets to be tomorrow, it'll be now. If you had a watch that just said now, <laughs> somebody asks you what time it is now, you wouldn't even need a battery. I mean, you could get it tattooed on your arm, right? It's not the eternal now. It's the ever-changing now. Change is so all-pervasive that we don't even notice it. We notice the pass of passage of time. We try to measure that. But we're just measuring change. We pick some regular changes, and then we make our clocks based on those, and yeah, it's just change happening. And this explains why time goes in only one direction. Things don't unchange. I can pick up the clock, right? I can put it over here, I can put it over here, and then I can put it back exactly where it was. But I didn't actually unchange it, right? Because the cars on the street out there didn't go backwards, right? A local little bit of unchange, but basically it's all just changing, and we could sort of pretend that we changed something back. But it's just change going on. So there's not really any time. There's no past. That's just your memory, and we all know how good your memory is. And the future, that's just your imagination. And we know how accurate that is, right? There's, there's no such thing as time. And yet, it's so important. You had to be here at 630 if you were going to get the sit, right? I was impressed. 625, it's like, well, I guess many people are coming. 631, the place is packed, right? Time, we all, we, we got it. And it's all about change. It's a useful construct, even though it's completely imaginary. The basic thing is change. We just don't see it, though. 
except when, of course, something changes that we wish didn't change or something's not changing and we wish it would change. But the Buddha talked about change quite a bit. It's a really important part of his teachings. I have a little book here. It's called Buddhessence. It was written by Daryl Bailey. Daryl Bailey used to be a, a monk with Ajahn Sumedho in England at Amravati Monastery. He was there for, I think, around a dozen years. And then eventually he decided to return to lay life and move back to Winnipeg, Canada. And he wrote what he felt was the essence of the Buddhist teachings. It's, it's just a little book. Uh, I think you can get it off of Amazon now. Uh, there's a link to it from my website, of course. You know, go to the reading list. Um, one of the things that he did One of the things he did is he went through the suttas, the Buddha's sermons, picking out what he felt fully illustrated the essence of what the Buddha was teaching. He pulled a bunch of stuff out of context, all right, but he did a good job of it. And then he wrote a commentary on this, and that's chapter one of this book. And what I want to do right now is share with you just the sutta readings. Not so much as commentary, but just the passages he thought really illustrated what he felt was the essence of the Buddhist teachings. There will come a time when even the great mountains and the earth itself will be gone. All things are impermanent, unstable, and insecure. Although it is of great benefit to feed Buddhas, to feed the monastic community, to build monasteries, to follow the moral precepts, and to practice loving kindness. It is of more benefit to maintain the perception of impermanence. It's better to live a single day perceiving how things rise and fall than to live a century not perceiving this. Everything is changing. Not even as much as a pinch of dust is unchanging. Physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. All of these arise, pass away, and while they are present, they change. Right, so everything is changing. Some of it's changing quite rapidly. Right? Some of it's changing really slowly. Uh, there's geological time, four and a half billion years since the planet was formed. It's been through a lot of changes. We don't really see much of those changes. If you go hike up a mountain, though, and hike back down, I'll bet you kicked more rocks downhill than you did uphill. Right? You're part of wearing away that mountain. And then eventually, yeah, there will come a time when even the great mountains are gone. There will come a time when the earth is swallowed by the sun, right? It's going to be a long time in the future. You don't have to worry about it, but everything is changing. It speaks of physical forms, 
feelings, perception, mental activities, and consciousness is all arising, passing away, and while they're present, they change. These are the five aggregates, literally the five heaps. It's sometimes said this is what the Buddha divided the psychophysical being up into these five constituents. I think it's a little too metaphysical. The Buddha wasn't doing metaphysics, although there is such a thing as Buddhist metaphysics, but that's for another lecture. All right. Mostly he's talking about phenomena. He's a phenomenologist, and he's saying the phenomena you experience could be put into these five categories. There's the material world, right? That's the physical forms, like whatever you're sitting on, right? <laughs> and your body, okay? This, this is all material stuff. The Buddha statue, that's material form. Then he talked about Vedna, which is usually translated as feelings. It does not mean emotions. It's your initial categorization of a sensory input. That's a nice, pleasant sound. The reason you're experiencing it as pleasant is because you're experiencing pleasant Vedna. That's your initial categorization. If I had a blackboard and I scraped my fingernails down it, unpleasant, right? And most things, like the pressure on your foot right now is probably pretty neutral, right? And that's the only possibilities. But these Vedna happen within the first tenth of a second of you receiving a sensory input. You, and we categorize it. It's happening in the so-called reptilian structure, the old brain, and it's automatic, right? The, the bell sounds nice because the ratio of the overtones is small whole numbers. The blackboard sounds bad because it doesn't do that, right? Uh, learning about Vedna is really important. They, they turn out to be, well, they, they run our lives. It's like when you arrived here, you got an instruction manual. You picked it up and it said, seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. Yeah, those first two, that's what we're doing. We're out looking for pleasant Vedna and trying to figure out how to avoid the unpleasant Vedna and ignoring the ones that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. All right, so this is a lot of our lives. We don't notice that's what we're doing consciously, but that's what we're doing. Perceptions. That's the translation of the Pali word sanya. I actually prefer to translate it as conceptualizations. We go around conceptualizing the world. What is this, right? If I ask you what it is, you're gonna tell me it's a bell, right? You could say it's a big pot. I actually think it's a helmet for somebody, right? Concepts, you know, that's, they're, not, they're not arbitrary. We learned what they are. But, you know, this table here, this platform, you think of it as a platform or a low table Leprechauns think of it as a bus shelter, right? It's, we go around conceiving the world, making up concepts, right? And our concepts fool us because, of course, my concept is always correct. Your concept, if, if it matches mine, is correct. But if it doesn't match mine, well, obviously, you don't know what's going on. 
mental activities. That category is the catch-all for everything that we experience doesn't fit the other categories. So that would be thoughts, emotions, memories, intentions. And then there's consciousness. Consciousness is, we could say, that which knows. And so it's the quality of knowing something. So when you look up here and you see that, you are aware of it. You're conscious of it. Right? So that's part of what's going on. And all of this stuff, the physical forms, they change slower. The Vedana, right? You take a bite of candy. How long does the pleasant Vedana last? An hour? Two hours? Five minutes? 30 seconds? Yeah, it's pretty short-lived, right? Concepts, you're conceiving one thing after another all the time and your concepts change anyhow. Your thoughts, how many thoughts have you had since you came into this room? How often do your emotions change? And your memories? How many people in the room remember all the telephone numbers they've ever had in their whole life? Oh, uh, yeah. I did meet one person who claimed to. Right? But, I mean, that was important, and it's gone from your memories. Changing all the time. And your intentions? Yeah, you intend to do this, but you do that instead. And your consciousness? Now, that's the one we want, actually, to stick around, right? Because every time you look, it's there. This is what we tend to identify with more than anything else, right? Because I'm always conscious. Well, not when I'm in dreamless sleep. When you're in dreamless sleep, what happens to your consciousness? Does it go someplace? If it goes someplace, how does it know where to come back to? What if last night, you know, it went somewhere else and you came back to the wrong body? Right? So your consciousness, you know, the objects of it are changing all the time, and it just turns off at times. If you have to have surgery and they put you out, it's way gone. Right? All of these things are rising and passing. This is our entire world experience. These are insubstantial without essence. Physical form is like a lump of froth. Vedna uh, feelings are like a water bubble. A raindrop hits a puddle. There's a bubble. How long does that last? Perception, your conceptualizations are a mirage. Your mental activities are like the empty banana tree trunk. You know banana trees? You have a banana tree with a trunk like this. You have a sharp machete. You can cut it down in one whack. It's empty. It's hollow. And consciousness is a magician's trick. That's your experience. It's all changing all the time. Life is like a flowing river, never pausing for a moment, an instant, or a second. Reminds me of Heraclitus. He's the one who said, you can't step in the same river twice always changing. Our concept is it's the same river. River Charles, right? Always been the River Charles, except it's different every instant. There is an unformed happening 
It is ignorance of the unformed that gives rise to formations. I often say there aren't really any nouns. It's just that some verbs move kind of slow, right? I mean, right now, this is spelling. It used to be, well, used to be some mineral someplace, right? Iron ore, you dug it out of the earth. Uh, this is tabling right now, or platforming. Used to be some trees, right? It's changing slowly, right? We make it a noun because it's easy to conceive of it that way. In the Navajo language, they don't have any nouns. It's all verbs, right? Can you see the world is only made up of verbs? Just some of them move kind of slow. Except, there's only one verb, actually, unfolding. We could say the universe is unfolding, which would help make it clear, but the phrase the universe is not really even necessary. There's just unfolding. And it's so vastly interconnected that as we make the various formations, fabrications, concoctions, things, concepts, it's not arbitrary, but very limited. When you see this platform, do you see the trees? They were there. You know, they wouldn't be there without these trees. Those trees were dependent on the earth in which they were growing. They were dependent on the minerals in the earth. They were, de they were dependent on the sunlight and the rain. Can you see the birds that were nesting in these trees? Can you see the animals walking around underneath them? That's all there. It's just changed its form. Change, right? When you start looking carefully, you find that everything seems to be attached to everything else. One of the big heroes in California is John Muir. You might have heard of him. He was one of the founders of the Sierra Club, right? One of the most preeminent naturalists this country's ever produced. My favorite saying from him is that you can't go into the wilderness and pick up anything without finding it nailed to everything else. And as it turns out, you don't even have to go into the wilderness to experience that. You just have to look really carefully. Right? So there's a unfolding. There's an unformed happening. But it's too big for our little pea brains to fully comprehend. So quite practically, in order to deal with the universe, we bust it up into a whole bunch of little pieces. And this is a bell, and that's a clock, and this is me, and that's you, and I'm wearing my glasses, and, and it makes operating in the relative reality, the conventional reality, a lot easier. But it doesn't capture the whole picture. The whole picture is nothing but verbs, and actually all the verbs are interconnected to the point where there's just unfolding. But don't try and cross the street from that viewpoint. You'll get run down. To believe there is permanence formation in the impermanent flowing is a distortion of perception, thought, and view. A young infant does not have ideas of a self, things, rites and rituals 
sensual pleasures, and beings. A young infant does not have ideas of a body, speech, or intentions. They say that a newborn child really can't distinguish itself from its mother. That all that it really knows is, well, there's stuff coming in through the senses that doesn't make any sense, and some of it is pleasant, and some of it is unpleasant. And then eventually it begins to learn that if it makes enough noise, the unpleasant goes away, right? And yeah, it begins to learn more and more. The underlying tendency to develop self-views, rights, and rituals, sensual desire, and ill will lies within the infant. When he grows and his faculty mature, he plays at games. When he grows and his faculties mature further, the youth enjoys himself with sensual pleasures of formations. Sight, sounds, sm smells, taste, and touches. On seeing a physical form, he wants it if it is pleasing and dislikes it if it is displeasing. Absorbed in liking and disliking, he clings to any feeling he feels. On hearing a sound, smelling a smell, tasting a flavor, touching a texture, noticing a mental object, there is clinging. All right, so we show up, we got no clue. Things eventually begin to make sense, like make noise, bad things go away. Right? And then you get a little more, you figure out that some of the things out there are pleasant and you can actually control getting pleasure from them. And some things are unpleasant and you can push them away and we're completely caught up in this trying to manipulate our environment and get the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. We're trying to make change happen so it'll give us the pleasant Vedana and get rid of the unpleasant Vedana change. Birth is origin, descent into the womb, delivery, the appearance of the five groups of formations, the five senses and their objects, and the functioning of the sense faculties around these formations. One is called a being when firmly entangled in desiring physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. We become somebody who is engaged with all of this, wanting the stuff that gives us pleasant Vedana, pushing away the stuff that doesn't. These five focuses of clinging create dukkha. When one has a desire for physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, then when they change, sorrow, pain, and despair arise in him. This is the cause of dukkha, suffering, unpleasantness. This desire arises when things appear to be enjoyable and ultimately fulfilling. Right? So we get the idea that this is something I want to get. But getting, well, it's craving. And once you got, it's clinging. You might have heard about craving and clinging being necessary conditions for the arising of dukkha, right? Buddha was really a genius. He, he didn't try and explain how the world worked or anything. He didn't do metaphysics. He said, the problem is dukkha, and it arises dependent on craving. 
Craving is a necessary condition. Turn off the craving and you turn off the dukkha. And then he laid out a path so you could learn to do that. But cling, craving can turn into clinging if you get it. And there are four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to self-theories, and clinging to rites and rituals. Clinging to sensual pleasures. So that's clinging to whatever gives us pleasant experiences. Used to be I could ask people, how big is your record collection? And it was, how big is your cassette tape collection? And it was, how big is your DVD collection? Right? Clinging to pleasant Vedna for your ear. Right? Maybe you don't have anything you're clinging to, but your subscription to Pandora or whatever. Right? Uh, visual things, how much artwork do you have? Right? You're clinging to that. Comfortable clothing, yeah, gives you a nice feeling. Sharp-looking clothing, right? You get get some positive feedback from that. All look at all your possessions. Right? This is what we're after: the sensual pleasures they provide. Clinging to views, you arrive, and when you look carefully, you discover the world doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean. It's crazy out there. Have you noticed? Think of a little kid arriving in this. It makes even less sense than it makes sense to us. Right? So we try and figure it out. We get some idea of what's going on. Unfortunately, sometimes we get an idea that makes a whole lot of sense to a three-year-old or a four-year-old. But when you become an adult, it doesn't serve you anymore. When I started teaching, one of the most shocking things I discovered was how bad parenting is in Western civilization. How many people, yeah, just really didn't get good parenting. And how that left people, when they were three or four years old, coming up with some view of the world that made sense to the three or four year old, but doesn't make any sense now. The most common one being, I'm not a good person. These people are supposed to know what's going on. They are supposed to be taking care of me. It's not working. It must be my fault. This is really common. And people spend $100 an hour going to see somebody to try and talk them out of a view that they developed when they were three years old that they can't let go of, that they know doesn't serve them but they got it in early. Whatever view we picked up really early, we really have a hard time getting rid of. And then there are other views we pick up later that, yeah, we get stuck with those as well. Self-theories. How do I fit into all this? Who am I? What am I supposed to do? We're trying to figure that out, and we come up with something that enables us to keep going. And if it works, then we're going to cling to it. This is who I am, and this is how I fit in, and everything else. I had a poster on my board at work. It said, this life is a test. If this life were a real life, you would have been given instructions on where to go and what to do. This life is only a test. Right? 
clinging to rites and rituals. As Westerners, we're not so caught up in rites and rituals, but we're caught up in habits. What habits do you have that you're clinging to? Do they serve you? Could be a good habit, you know, going to the gym, buying organic food, whatever, right? But are you clinging to it? What if the gym is closed? What if your favorite organic grocery goes out of business? Duca. <laughs> Ignorance of the flowing, unformed quality of life gives rise to a tendency to fixate on formations. This gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. A wise disciple sees this and is no longer fascinated by physical forms, vedna, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. Right? We ignore the changing nature of the universe, the fact that it's just rolling on, that it's all verbs, that it's all one verb. And we see bits and pieces and we grab hold of them and we want to possess them or whatever. Because everything is changing though, it doesn't work. Suppose you go to the beach. No, wait, you guys go to the shore, right? You go to the shore and you take a little kid with you. Out there with these big waves, you know, and sand, right? And you build a sandcastle, a really big sandcastle, you know, turrets, big wall around the outside, find some driftwood for the drawbridge, you know, big moat, right? You got a good one, and a big wave comes along, wipes it out. Are you upset? The kid might be screaming, right? But you understand the nature of sandcastles. You don't think, it's a great sandcastle. Let's take it home in the trunk of the car. We'll put it on the dining room table. This does not occur to you because you understand the nature of sandcastles. I got news for you, folks. It's all sandcastles. Everything is changing. Not even as much as a pinch of dust is unchanging. Life is like a flowing mountain river, never pausing for a moment or an instant or a second. Perceiving impermanence in all formations, then all formations will be seen as insubstantial, changing, not lasting. Perceiving impermanence, the mind does not reach for gain, control. Knowing that physical forms, vedana, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness are insubstantial, fading away, and ultimately unsatisfying, the attraction to these is given up. With no attachment to physical forms, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, then when they change, no sorrow, pain, grief, and despair arises. Perceiving no lasting formation, no mentality or materiality, the mind is re rid of the intoxicant the conceit of I and mine, this body and consciousness. That not-self thing, we go around conceiving of a self. Me, the most important person in the universe, right? Right? That's what we're looking at. If we can truly see the flowing nature of the universe, truly experience the impermanent nature of this mind and body, we begin to get the idea that what we're experiencing is just a point of view into the universe. 
ain't nobody home. The mind with understanding is set free from the intoxicant of sensual desire, ideas of endless pleasure. The intoxicant of becoming, ideas of the self and the world and how they should be. The intoxicant of views, interpretations, and the intoxicant of ignorance, permanence, lasting pleasure, the most important person in the universe, me. Supreme emptiness, liberation, is the presence of the sixth century feels, the happening of the moment, without the intoxicant of sensual desire, the intoxicant of becoming, and the intoxicant of ignorance. That which is absent, desire, self, world, and permanence, is absent. That which is present, the happening of the moment, is present. Whoever in the past reached and remained in pure emptiness, liberation, it was this that they reach. By not clinging to views, by seeing life clearly and being freed from all sense desires, one is not born again into delusion and clinging. So, what impermanent thing are you clinging to? Or things, maybe. There was an incident that happened to me a few years ago that really brought this home. I was sitting on my couch one Saturday reading a book. There was a knock at the door. I opened the door. There's two guys standing there. One's kind of tall. The other one's a little shorter, chubbier. Wearing dark suits, white ties, white sh uh, shirts, dark ties. They got on hats. They looked a little like the Blues Brothers. These were not the Blues Brothers. The tall one reaches in, pulls out a badge, and says, FBE, we've come for the socks. What? FBE, we've come for the socks. What on earth are you talking about? Old guy has a clipboard. He goes, Federal Bureau of Enlightenment. You signed up for Arahant. Ambitious, aren't we? We know that in the right-hand drawer of your chest of drawers, in the back left-hand side, there are five socks with holes in them that you've been saying you were going to fix for a long time. We've come for those socks. Are you clinging to them? You want the socks? Yeah. Okay, wait here. I closed the door. I locked the door. <laughs> I went upstairs. I opened the right-hand drawer in the back. Yeah, I'm never going to fix these socks, right? Close the drawer. Go back downstairs. You want the socks? Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. You take the socks and they go away. I'm like, this is weird. I didn't live too far from Berkeley at that time, but that would have been weird even in Berkeley. <laughs> All right? So the next day, sitting on my couch, reading the same book, there's a knock at the door. I look through the peephole this time. It's the same two guys. Wonder what they want. I open the door. FBE, we've come for the salary. The salary? 
Yes, we know in the uh, left-hand crisper in the bottom of your refrigerator, there are three stalks of celery that are <laughs> really old. Are you clinging to the celery? Uh, no, you want the celery. Okay, wait here. Close the door, lock the door. Go into the kitchen. I forgot about the celery. Go back, take them the celery. They seem really happy, they go away. Wow. The next day, I'm at work. I'm telling people about this. We're all having a laugh. This is crazy. <laughs> next Saturday, I'm sitting on my couch. I'm reading a different book. There's a knock at the door. Oh, same two guys. <laughs> Wonder what they want this time. Open the door. FBE, we've come for the couch. The couch? You can't have the couch. Go away. Go away. You're clinging to the couch, aren't you? Of course I'm clinging to the couch where I sit when I read. You signed up for our friendship and you're going to cling to a couch? Yeah, it's my couch. Your couch? You're clinging to it. You think you possess it. The Buddha said something about not conceiving of a self, not conceiving of I, me, and mine. And you're clinging to a couch and calling it yours. And you signed up for our friendship? Yeah. Look, we're going to take the couch. We're going to donate it to some people who need a couch. You're going to give up the couch. You're going to cling to it. We went on like this for like 10, 15 minutes. I had to admit they had a point. Eventually, I said, okay, you can have the couch. There is a trick to getting the couch in or out of that apartment. I did not tell them the trick. They figured it out. <laughs> There goes my couch, bye couch. Next day, sitting in a chair, reading a book. There's a knock at the door. I look through the peephole. It's them. I'm not opening the door. We know you're in there. I don't say nothing. Come on, open up. You want to get enlightened or not? You go, finally open the door. What? FBE, we've come for the hot tub. The hot tub? I snatched the clipboard out of the little guy's hand. There it is. Socks, celery, couch, hot tub, Prius, waterbed, girlfriend. Girlfriend! I shoved the thing back in their face. I shoved them out of my doorway. I slammed the door. I locked the door. I'm leaning up against the door. My heart is racing. My palms are sweating. And then I realized I'd made a big mistake. I opened the door. They were only at the end of the driveway. I shouted after them, hey, can I have my couch back? <laughs> what are you clinging to? The FBE comes and knocks at your door. What are you clinging to? You probably give them some dead celery. What if they want your couch? There's a very profound sutta in the Mahayana tradition called the Diamond Cutter Sutra. It, it builds, sort of like Bolero. There's a really good translation and commentary on it by Musang from Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. I definitely recommend it. But it builds to this crescendo, these verses. 
Thus you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. All the things of creation are subject to decay. Diligently seek liberation. Any questions?